The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Well, that is the word of the Lord. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we ask your blessing upon John this morning as he begins to unwrap these hard words for sure that were unfathomable to those who were listening to them and even today, Lord, um, can be shrouded in ministry. And so we come before you with eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts open to what your spirit will speak to each one of us this morning. And we give you thanks and praise for all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Jack. That you're good. I got you <laughs> muted up here. As Jack was reading that, I had a, a funny thought that, um, you know, I'm stewing on this passage for a couple weeks now, so it's somewhat familiar, but and many of you have a long background with church and you've read the gospel, so maybe you've heard this. Some of you maybe not. And how odd of a passage that is. If you have no context and you just jump into John chapter 6 and do one of these, Whoa! it's really, really strange what Jesus says here. Uh, Vampire-like. And as we continue along in this series, uh, this is the passage of which we get the title for the series, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. That comes from John chapter 6, verse 60. When the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And so I don't have a uh, clear alliterated outline this morning. Um, my apologies to those of you who love the alliteration. Um, and you're welcome to those of you who don't, Mike Gaston. Um, we're going to just look at John chapter 6 as a whole and reflect and, and think through what uh, this might mean and how this might bear weight on our hearts and our lives and our souls today. And so, John 6. It's a really fun chapter in that the popularity of Jesus is... It's gaining momentum. Uh, I like the word fever pitch, even though I, I, it's a terrible movie um, with, what, Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore, I think. Uh, bad movie, fun saying. 
uh, in the meaning of, of fever pitches, just that there's this dual excitement and agitation that is happening is Christ is gaining in popularity and his ministry is uh, beginning to break out and reach the masses. Passover is at hand in the beginning of uh, chapter 6, which, as we've seen in this series, that's a pattern all throughout Scripture, the pattern of Passover. And so it's at hand, and there's this meal Jesus gives to many, many people in the early part of chapter 6, is he takes five loaves, two fish, he gives thanks, he distributes, they save the leftovers, which in and of itself may be a hard saying for some of you, that Jesus says, save the leftovers. Don't let the food go to waste. I know there's some of you picky people out there that are like, I hate leftovers. And maybe that's what you need to hear from Jesus today. <laughs> leftovers can be a great joy and delight. But they save the leftovers and in the response to Jesus feeding this massive gathering of people is this. I'm going to be referencing a bunch of John 6. It's not going to be on the screen. If you have your app or your Bible, you can, you can follow along. But in verse 14 of John 6, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And so they're going, this guy is something. Maybe this is the long-awaited, anticipated, expected Messiah. But then this is interesting, what Jesus does in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him a king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I feel like John 6, 14 is very much the human experience of how we would write this story. We have this miracle working and making God. Let's make him king. This is good. But what's interesting is that their desire to crown Jesus king leads to his disappearance. The crowd's desire leads to his disappearance. They want Jesus to be king. They want him to rule. They want him to reign. But that desire leads to him disappearing. There's a phrase that I think it's John Tyson said, he's a pastor in New York, that God goes where he's wanted. And he uses it in the context of prayer and prayer meetings and all that. And there's, I think, some truth to it. But then I read this passage and I go, yeah, kind of. God goes where he's wanted unless where he's wanted isn't in line with his will. And so, again, their desire, we want Jesus to be king. He goes, nope, bounces. He's in the wilderness by himself because it's not about thine is the kingdom and the power or thy will be done. It's about their own personal, my will be done. So their desire isn't aligned with the will of God, even if it's seemingly a good thing, which is, hey, let's make Jesus king. Let's drive out Rome. Let's renew the life of Israel and the covenant and all that. And Jesus goes, that's not the way his kingdom came about. So he bounces. The disciples go into the boat. There's strong winds that arise. They're three to four miles into rowing across the lake, and Jesus walks on water. <laughs> and so it's something they're all terrified of, and Jesus says yet another hard saying in John chapter 6, don't be afraid, which may be the most difficult and consistent commandment all throughout Scripture. Don't fear. Have no fear. Don't be afraid. He gets into the boat. He identifies himself, and in verse 24, 
or 21, they are glad. They take him into the boat, and immediately, this is wild. Immediately, the boat was at the other side uh, on the land to which they were going. And you don't get more information. I want more information. What was that like? How did that go? Was that like, you know, the, the Star Wars where like the stars start going and you're at the other side? Is this just an instantaneous? Is it because they were with Jesus that just, you know, time flies when you're having fun sort of thing? These are questions that may or may not be answered in eternity that I think about. And so the next day, the crowd finds Christ on the other side. They find him and they go, when did you come here? We were looking for you. And again, you would think, this is good. People are seeking Jesus. This is a really, really good thing. Where there's massive amounts of people looking for Christ or saying the name of Jesus, that's great, right? Surprisingly to me, wrong. Jesus isn't having it. And part of that is, you see in verse 26... Jesus knows where they're coming from. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus is saying, you just want food. You're hungry, maybe moving towards uh, Paul and my favorite thing, you're, you're hangry, right? Get a certain attitude when you're, you're hungry. And they're looking after Jesus, and he's going, you aren't coming because you saw the signs or want to believe in me. You just want food at this point. And so then Jesus further instructs them, verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus is beginning to reorient and instruct them towards who he truly is and what he came to do. And there's this discussion that ensues. And they say to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And this is interesting in that Jesus doesn't then give them a laundry list of activities, religious activities to go about. He doesn't give them um, a framework and a moral code of which how they should behave and be pure. Again, there are activities and there is a moral code within faith and following Christ, but he goes so much deeper as he does to the heart. What must they do? Jesus says to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. He says he has come to give eternal life. Okay, well, how do we access that? And he says, this life is given to you, and how it's accessed is through belief. And so Jesus here is setting up a couple foundational truths of the gospel. And the first is this, that in a world of death, then and now, Jesus came to give life. In a world of death, Jesus enters in physically and bodily and comes to give life. And and Jesus, as he's instructing, goes about not just what he came to do to give life, but how it comes about. That is the second foundational truth, that the access to that life that Jesus gives 
and promises and offers to all people is faith. The front door to access this eternal life that Jesus promises to give is faith, belief, trust in the actual person, in the actual work of Jesus. Trusting in Christ, who he is, and what he has accomplished, that's the foundation and the entry point of this life with him. And that life isn't just simply, and I say this often, it feels like, isn't just simply in the afterlife, eternally to come. It is accessed here and now. In our very lives, our families, our works, our vocations, our our recreation, everything that we do, there's this life to be accessed with Christ. Dallas Willard, he says, Jesus offers himself as God's doorway into the life that is truly life. And he's commenting on John 10 later where Jesus says he's the door for the sheep. Confidence in him leads us today, as in other times, to become his apprentices in eternal living. Those who come through me will be safe, he says. They will go in and come out and find all that they need. I have come into the world that they may have life and life to the limit. And he's paraphrasing John 10.10 there. In other words, eternal life is not primarily duration, but quality of life. Life to the limit. It cannot be stolen from us, and so it does go on. But the focus is on the life Itself In him was life, the Apostle of John says, of Jesus, and that life was the light of men. That's referenced in John chapter 1. And so Jesus enters in. He feeds these thousands of people. They're seeking after him because they're hungry, and they want more of that bread. And Jesus, again, kind of is throwing them uh, one of those you guys remember Byung Hung Kim, the, the Diamondbacks guy with the sidearm, and he had a wicked slider? Jesus has given him one of those. And so they say, okay, what is that, Jesus? And he says this in verse 29. Again, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. They seem to understand that he's talking about himself, and they go, okay, well... Give us a sign. This is verse 30. So they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Just like the manna in the wilderness where the people of God are hungry and grumbly, Jesus then answers and says, it it wasn't Moses that gave you this food, this bread, but it was the Father, and the Father has sent me, and I'm here to give you life. And it's, again, this dialogue, this back and forth where they are seemingly wanting to have that, but they aren't fully grasping what Jesus is saying. They say in verse 34, sir, give us this bread always, right? That's one of those like Billy Mays uh, infomercials, but wait, there's more, but wait, there's more, but wait, there's more. And you're like, I want all of that. I want the OxyClean, and I want the to-go pouch, and I want the car spray thing. I want it all. How do I get that? And so Jesus begins to explain to them further, verse 35. I, Jesus says of himself, am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, 
and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That is one of the most beautiful promises in Scripture. That all the Father gives to Jesus will come to him, and whoever comes to Jesus, he will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then verse 41, which to me, these little parenthetical seemingly like side comments to me make the gospel so more so much more believable so the jews grumbled about him because he said i am the bread that has come down from heaven maybe this is just simply for me but i find it helpful to place myself in this story not as one that would be maybe like Peter, like, oh, you have the words of eternal life, but to place myself in the feet of those that would grumble and not believe. Because I think, I think that I'm often that kind of way. That Jesus is explaining, Jesus is leading, Jesus is guiding, and I'm the guy that's like, yeah, but, okay, well, in that place of unbelief, in that place of Going, really, Jesus? This gospel story isn't simply Jesus comes, he feeds people, he teaches, and he's loving, and they're just like, yes! It is Jesus comes, and Jesus meets people, and Jesus heals, and Jesus delivers, and Jesus feeds, and they go, "Mm, I don't know. They grumble together about all of this. Then again, Jesus being Jesus knows that. In verse 42, they said, and here's their reasoning, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? It's great. I'm going, this is just Jesus. Joe Schmo's son marries his mom. And yeah, and isn't it not wild that these are the people that had just been fed? Thousands and thousands of them. And then Jesus begins getting into the weeds and going, hey, you need to believe in me. And they're like, you? I'll take a sandwich from you, but believe? That you come from heaven? You're Messiah? Like we were ready to crown you king yesterday, but today you're looking pretty human with this stuff. And so Jesus knows that. He engages them and then gets into not just simply what he came to do, the will of the Father, but how he is going to go about that, which brings us finally now to the hard saying. That Jesus says, if you want to participate in this life, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And collectively, they and we are like, really? That's what you're calling us to? Now, again, for many of us, we know the entirety of the story, and Jesus is speaking metaphorically, and that's pointing to the reality of the cross and all of that, but but again, let's, let's 
attempt to imagine and place ourselves in this story. You had been fed. This guy, Jesus, seems to be really great. And you follow. I mean, you walk miles to go to the other side of the lake, and you're like, this seems like a guy worth following, and I'm hungry again. You know, this body keeps burning up energy, and I need to keep feeding it, and everybody loves bread. And I can guarantee it it wasn't gluten-free, probably. It was delicious bread. Like some of you sourdough bakers out there, selfishly, I want to have a pastoral judging competition of all of you that are making sourdough. And, you know, so I can have more bread. So they enjoy this food that Jesus gives them. But all of a sudden, his claims are becoming bigger. It's not just that he came to feed people. He came to do the will of God. And it's not just that he's Joseph and Mary's son, but he is sent from heaven And participation in this life, participation in in accessing this bread which will always satisfy in this this thirst-quenching life that he promises is through, it would sound like, cannibalism. Cannibalism makes us all uncomfortable. Um, If you want a good book on the Donner Party, Indifferent Stars Above, Grotesque, Horrible, wonderfully written, crazy story of the Donner Party. Fun fact, there was two Wolfingers in the Donner Party. Yeah, true story. Uh, One of them got murdered before they started eating each other, because, read the book. And the other one got through, probably nibbling on, you know, a hip or something, I don't know. Dorothy. Huh? Huh? Is that I don't know if I'm related or not. i got to do the genealogy work now. But the name's in there, Wolfinger. And it's not common, so... We're on cannibalism. <laughs> that wasn't in the notes, if you couldn't tell. So to give these first listeners a little bit of sympathy, they have no clue what Jesus is talking about, and perhaps often we don't either. But what we have is the gift of the whole story and and what happens further. And if you have that perspective, and you, we are able to zoom out with history in 2,000 years and the entirety of the scriptural story and all these commentaries from it, we can see how the dots connect. And uh, J.I. Packer, in a long quote, He's a a deceased Anglican theologian, wonderful, wonderful human, and amazing legacy and work that, that he wrote and taught. He says this, There have been five chapters in John's Gospel leading up to this point, and they establish the frame of reference into which eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood actually fits. Come to him and believe in him, as Nicodemus was taught to do in John 3. As were the, women at the, the woman at the well and the other folks from Sychar in the next chapter. And in chapter 5, you've got the reality of Jesus healing the cripple and restoring to him a life that he didn't have before. The Jews were understandably bewildered because they didn't know that Calvary was coming. And so they scratched their heads and asked the question at which that, at that stage was unanswerable, really. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
The reference Jesus made to eating his flesh and drinking his blood is metaphorical in a way of describing the person who draws on, claims, or lays hold of the reality of his atoning sacrifice by putting personal faith in him. We've constantly got to come back to that. It all adds up, you see. And this is something that I find myself wanting to say over and over again to people who ask me about difficult scriptures. If you read what leads up to them in the book from which they come again and again, you'll find that the problem answers itself because the foundation for resolving it has already been laid. So Jesus says here, he's come to give eternal life now and in the one to come. That doing the work of God is simply believing in the Son. And that Son is bread. And coming to Him, there's satisfaction at the level of the soul. There's, there's a hunger and thirst that we have deep within our bones. That, that when we're quiet and we're alone and we're honest, we all can recognize that ache. We don't go about filling that void, satisfying that hunger, quenching that thirst. We all go about it in different ways. But, but the core of it all is that we have that within our souls. It's like, what was it, Immanuel Kant to, I think, therefore I am. Humans are just simply thinking creatures. It's like, I, I have a soul level ache, therefore. I'm human. That, that doesn't seem to be the same angst that my dog has. She's like, I get pet, therefore I'm a dog. Um, and love everything and everyone. And these homo sapiens, you and I, have this different level of hunger and thirst and longing that Jesus says he comes to satisfy. And the bedrock of it all Life with God, satisfaction of our needs, is, is belief, is trust, is faith in him. Hebrews 11 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then if you jump down to verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him, that is God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The writer of Hebrews is in a different kind of way saying what Jesus said in John chapter 6. That the bedrock of every single life is a belief system. Every single one of us have some sort of belief system by which we then make meaning in life. The decisions we make, the jobs we work, how we spend our time, our money, our attention, all of that is built off of some sort of, for all of us, hobcobbled belief system. And for these first listeners in John 6, they didn't know exactly who Jesus was or what he came to do and didn't trust him in this moment. Many disciples disperse. Jesus challenges them, and you see later in John 6, Peter then has the confession, Lord, to where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to see and know that you are the Holy One of God. There's this great confession to which Jesus then kind of reorients Peter and, and 
It says, did I not choose all of you and the 12 and one of you is the devil? And again, you're going, what is Jesus up to here? Is this story is simply building and culminating into the cross. For us, though we may cognitively now understand the metaphor of what Jesus is saying, to eat his flesh and to drink his blood is to trust in who he is and what he did on the cross, the reality of this kind of radical discipleship is still a very difficult saying. Because what Jesus is saying is eternal life is only accessed through him and him alone. Jesus challenges our hearts, our affections, our minds. and says, are, am, am I essentially enough for you? Jesus reveals to them and us that though we often may come to him, it's not for who he is, but it's what we want. We can often treat Jesus as though he's just some genie in a bottle. And Jesus isn't after mere affirmation or cognitive assent, checking off the box, well, sure, yeah, I believe Jesus, he's the Son of God, and that gets me into heaven, right? Jesus is after the heart. He is after our faith and belief. He's after, the way I've been phrasing and understanding in my own mind, what faith is, it's functional trust. What we believe shapes how we live, where we set up camp, how we go about participating in this thing called life. So many of us in this room today would say, oh yeah, sure, I trust Jesus. And I go, great. But functionally, what are you trusting in? Functionally, what are you believing in? Functionally, how is that going about? And you basically have to trace that back to your attention, your time, your money, your devotion. What you're thinking about, what you're talking about, what you're devoted to. And that's where following Jesus becomes costly. That's where following Jesus becomes more difficult. That's where we begin to see that Jesus has some difficult things to say to us. Some sobering realities that no one of us is simply neutral, but what we believe influences how we build. And again, the avenue through which we participate in this life with God today is through, he says, abiding in eternal living. This idea of believing and abiding in him and experiencing eternal life today. And I've told a few people that this week, reflecting on this text, kicking it around again and again and again, like, even to this moment, this, this sermon has no clear ending at all. Because I've, I've, I've had such a difficult time putting into words this reality and explaining. I mean, how do you explain that Jesus says, even still today, participation in life with him is a matter of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. We go, oh, well, metaphorically, and Mike's going to connect that all to communion, I'm sure, beautifully here in, in a few moments, and I'm going to go, that's what I should have said. <laughs> no pressure. Um, 
But what I keep coming back to is this really, really good news that God came to dwell among us. And we, we already did a series on the incarnation. But Jesus really did come and really did interact with broken people just like you and me. And he really did give himself. He didn't come to rescue people through hacking their lives towards holiness and living. And I think about these people 2,000-ish years ago, and they just wanted a little bit of a break, a little bit of a better life, a little bit of just not feeling the constant pressure of Rome and the oppression. Like they had these understandably good godly desires of like, I want a better life for myself, for my family, for this nation that God supposedly has called us to be. But they missed the point because what Jesus said is it's not about these material things solely, but it's about trusting in him and that gives meaning to everything else. And then I fast forward to myself and I'm like, man, I I often think, well, I, I can have a little bit of a better life if I just follow the supplement regime. If I listen to a few tips from Andrew Huberman, I'll, I'll get in the sauna, I'll cold plunge, and then, and then that'll shake all of this. And it's like, there's really good, helpful, necessary tools that can help life, yes. Diet and exercise and all of that. But like, at the end of the day, we can do all of those things and still be absolutely miserable. And what we truly deeply need that is so available for every single one of us every single day is Christ himself inviting us still, come to me. Knowing our pain, knowing our longing, knowing the difficulty that we are trudging through every single day. And he's saying, come to me. And I think, well, if, you know, if I was back in the, and I already told you, it's more helpful to place ourselves in the, the feet of the, the sinners and the doubters and the non-heroes of the story. If I just saw the Red Seas parted, how could the, the Jewish people ever have made the golden calf? And it's like, I would have been the first one ripping out nose rings and, and getting it together because I today fail to see the goodness of God in the miracles and the manna that he gives every single day. Don't you wonder, like, maybe these people look at us from their perspective in the eternity are like, are you kidding me? You have the whole stinking story. You get to carry it around all the time with you. You could listen to it. You can hear people talk about it. You have all these commentaries. You have all these people. You have the freedom to gather and pray. And you can just ask somebody to pray and they'll pray for you. You could call them on the phone from across the world. You have all of humanity's knowledge in your pocket and you still don't believe? We miss it. I miss it. And at the end of the day, then and now, what Jesus shows us is that he's enough. He has set out 
a banquet before us. It's Psalm 23 every single day for us. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He's anointing our head with oil. Our cup runs over. Jesus has given us himself. And we get to see that through his word. We get to see that through the the infinite gifts of creation that he gives us every single day. Just to, you have people around you who care for you, who love you, who if everything hits the fan today would be there in a moment to love you and serve you. We have the opportunity to take part in the Lord's Supper today, to sing songs, to give money, to drink coffee and eat donuts. Like we have everything and on top or underneath all of that is Jesus himself saying, I'm good, and I'm with you, and I'm for you. Trust in me. Follow me. Obey me. See me. He's right there with us and for us. But often, my desires, like these people, can maybe lead to a seeming disappearance. And so Jesus gently and graciously realigns us. He says he's enough. In this world of death, even today, Jesus is still life. Belief is still the bedrock on which every single one of us build our lives and make meaning of it all. And Jesus invites us to abide with him and participate in this eternal life. So I think the questions become, like every single day and every single week, is Jesus enough for you? What tends to threaten or poison the meal that he is offering? Where is your attention and your focus, and how does it get in the way of, or what avenues need to be carved out to more regularly participate in abiding with him? And I don't know exactly where you are. I don't know exactly what you need. But what I am confident of is that the very person and work of Jesus, through the presence and power of his Holy Spirit, somehow mysteriously and wonderfully is there, willing to meet us exactly where we are with exactly what we need seldom in the way that we would anticipate, rarely in the story that we would script, but in a beautiful, gentle, meaningful, powerful way, Jesus is here in our very midst, inviting us to participate in this good, wonderful life with him, feasting on his very person and work. And so friends, may that good news of Jesus giving us life reorient how we live, how we move, how we breathe, how we go about it all. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came and that you meet us where we are, as we are, 
and you don't simply heap up platitudes or give cliches, but you challenge us and our desires with truth and beauty, with love and grace. And so God, would you help us to see you for who you are? Every single one of us come into this room with distortions and untruths, stories that we've told ourselves or that have been told to us, inaccurate representations of the beauty and the the truth and the grace and the mercy and the kindness and compassion of Jesus. And so God, would you clear that away and help us to see and experience you for who you really are and that you today would reorient us yet again towards life and hope in the midst of difficulty and grief and death and pain. God, you meet us in that paradox of it all. And so, God, as we respond now, would you continue to speak, continue to help, continue to simplify, and help us to set our desires and and see how our desires are ultimately fulfilled in you. In your name we pray. Amen.